Well, I was born in Champaign, Illinois, which is where University of Illinois is, and where my dad was getting his PhD at the time. My parents are British. My dad came over here to get his PhD, and then we never left. I was born in 1966, so uh, it was get out of my face, come back when the street lights come on kind of situation. We lived on the edge of the suburbs. Now it's filled with houses, but back then it was sort of like a subdivision, but it was right on the edge of the prairie. So there was just untilled, not worked land behind our house. And I spent hours out there looking at all the plants and um, the grass would grow really tall. So we'd crawl around and make little tunnels through the grass. I was doing all kinds of experiments as a kid, like spending hours looking at things and going back and checking them again and seeing if there's any difference than it was last time. Picking plants and putting them in water, what did they do next, you know, like I remember being really impressed and like amazed that I took a yellow dandelion and I dug up the root, you know, the whole dandelion and brought it into the garage. Of course, all the flowers started turning into puffball heads and I was like, wow, I didn't know where those came from. I found a dead mallard duck out in the prairie. I would go out there every day and check it out. Like, what's happening? Is it any different today? And it was like me doing a little science experiment as a little kid of like, huh, I wonder what's going to happen, you know? And it, of course, starts to decompose. That was very educational for me as a kid. Um, it wasn't a negative thing. It was just like, oh, so that's what happens. Worms come and they, they you know... And I have a memory of I was standing in the side of our house on the grass at summertime. I'm looking up at my, my bedroom window, which is on the second floor. And I remember I start crying because I realized that someday I'm going to die. It's like they had that, the light bulb went on. I'm like, oh, I'm going to die someday. And I remember feeling really bad about it, you know. And that's like a vivid visual image. I don't know, I'm six years old. I don't have a... You know, everything that you learn is, is new, so none of it is surprising because it's all surprising. When I was seven, my parents moved to Nova Scotia, Canada, and I started second grade, and I didn't know how to read because the school I'd been to had been kind of an alternative kind of school. My parents didn't know that I didn't know how to read. They were that checked out. People of that generation, they just, you went to school, you did your thing, and they didn't involve themselves in any of it. But of course, I picked it up real quick because, you know, it wasn't that I wasn't able to. It was just that no one had tried to teach it to me. I got it real quick, but it was an interesting introduction to uh, school there. Uh, I went to elementary school and that elementary school was a very rough place it was uh, a lot of bullying a lot of fighting um, no adults were you know didn't either didn't notice or didn't want to know what was going on when they weren't around and they weren't around so nowadays you go on the playground at recess and there'll be teachers watching and like, oh, don't do that, Johnny, don't. Um, not when I was going to school. You were kicked out, go do your thing, come back at this time. I am non-binary and 
And that isn't something I decided one day, oh, I'm non-binary now. No, I've always been non-binary. You don't fit in with girls and you don't really fit in with boys. There was no word for it. I mean, maybe there was somewhere, but I didn't know it. You kind of kind of fit in better with boys than you do with girls because boys don't really give a crap whether you're, you can play four-dimensional chess in your head about social interactions, but girls, at least of that period, were very much um, different socially than boys. Girls are all about the four-dimensional chess of like, oh, you know someone, you know Sally, she's friends with so-and-so, but we don't like so-and-so, so we're, you know, we're engineering a social change in Sally. You know, it's like, that's way over my head. I was a little weird looking. I'm a little taller than average. I had an American accent. You'd have to be very, very good at integrating in order to become part of their social group. And I wasn't able to because they had their own culture there of jump rope and all that stuff. Canadians, they have kind of a self-esteem issues with being Canadian, which is dumb because they're perfectly good people. But they think that they're not. They think that they're, that they're being judged against Americans somehow. Like, I know that sounds weird, but it was consistent through the whole time I lived in Canada. It was always like, good job for a Canadian was sort of like something people would say seriously. We as Americans were like baffled by that. We're like, you're fine. You haven't do anything any different than Americans would do. So they already had this sort of chip on their shoulder about me. So I, I did a lot of stuff on my own. I, I made kites. I, I built things. My brother and I had this dorky little sailboat, and we would sail it around, and I used to go snorkeling all the time. And, and really, I just involved myself in the outdoors and, and observing things and painting and drawing and, and reading and doing those things that are solitary. The thing that sort of struck me recently is that from an empirical perspective, as a little kid, you're basically seeing the world kind of like a little scientist and that you're, you, you're taking information from cause and effects, things you see. You know, you're making sense out of it, just like kind of like a scientist would. And I, I remember going from one school where everyone hated me and picked on me and made fun of me, thinking, oh, I'm going to go to a new school. Nobody knows me. Nobody knows anything about me. It'll be a reset. And then the exact same thing happens. So that gives you a really uh, negative self-esteem thing because you're like, wow, two completely independent sets of kids just hated me for and like were horrible. And it kind of made me like, go, wow, there must be something about me that's wrong here, not them. But toward the end of that time, when I was, I think, in the spring when we were about to finish, I remember... I was sitting on the school bus, which was always a traumatic experience, being on a school bus with a bunch of people who hate you. Um, I remember being on the bus or looking out the window at the classroom. Another one where I'm looking at a window, another window that I see all the time, and I'm looking at my classroom window and I think, I'm not going to be like these people. I'm not going to judge other people by their height or what they look like or what they sound like. I'm just, I just refuse to comply. I'm never going to do that. And uh, I know that sounds weird, but I have this really strong memory of that at that moment of like, this was wrong. 
what these people are doing is wrong and they shouldn't do this to people. This is unfair. There's absolutely no reason why other than maybe I look different or I sound different or I wear different clothes or something about me. And I just refuse to do that. I'm not going to do that to people. I have to say that's kind of a theme that's run through my whole life and um, it's a positive in some ways and it's also really um, caused some really bad things to happen to me. I guess the silver lining to the bullying that I experienced and the total ostracizing was that I didn't have that that reward system happening in my life. I didn't have the reward system of like, oh, if I wear my hair this way and I have this particular look or whatever, I'm going to be popular. I never got rewarded with that, ever. So it was like I never felt withdrawals from not being popular because I didn't care. So I never had, I never felt like I had to like change myself or betray anyone, you know, be mean to anyone in order to fit in with another group of kids. I never did that. um, And I think that's a good thing. It was a huge relief to move to Eugene, Oregon, where I get to start again with a new school a totally different group of people. People here in in that area are more like associated with the University of Oregon. Kids of people who work at University of Oregon, and it was just it was so ni- much nicer. I went to middle school and uh, in Eugene, and high school in Eugene, and um, I got really involved in art. And I pretty much lived in the art rooms of whatever school I was in. And I kind of got to the point where the teacher's like, yeah, you can come here anytime. Just do whatever you want, you know. You're welcome to come in whenever you have, you know, time. And I did a lot of that. I did ceramics and designed and cast jewelry. I um, did photography. I didn't have a whole lot of friends, but I did have some friends. And no one was beating me up in the bathroom or anything like that. (laughs) I have ADHD pretty seriously, and um, of course, I wasn't diagnosed with it at all because girls weren't um, in the 70s. Girls weren't diagnosed with ADHD. It was a boy's disorder. And uh, if you weren't bouncing off the walls, you would basically not get diagnosed. There's an aspect to ADHD on the emotional side of ADHD. Nobody studies the emotional side of ADHD because how the heck do you study that? How are you feeling right now on a scale of one to ten? How how do you study people's feelings? It's really hard. All you can do is get them to describe it. There's no objective way to measure how upset you are or mad or whatever. But you can judge people based on their cognitive skills pretty well. You can give them a test to like, can you remember these words for five minutes or whatever? So they've totally ignored the emotional side of ADHD until recently. You feel like you just want to bang your head against the wall until you die. It's like it's a horrible feeling. And, it, and people can put you into that scenario by browbeating you, shaming you. You just feel like you don't deserve to live. And, um, you know... I used to self-harm because of it. I would really hurt. I'm, I probably have brain injury from it, to be honest with you. Some people apparently do self-harm because it makes them feel better. Like it, it helps them separate from their feelings and makes them numb. 
Not this. This is like you want to destroy and punish yourself as hard, hard as you can, as hard as you can stand um, because you don't like yourself. And uh, it's not killing yourself, but it basically is kind of like that. One of the issues that I have is doing the give and take in conversation. So there's quite a few times where I get too focused on my own thing and I, I tend to interrupt people or override them in the conversation. Mostly because my mind is on the track of the ideas that I've got in my head and I'm not, I've forgot to pay attention to the turn-taking part of it. I have to do that with my executive functioning in my brain. It doesn't happen naturally. I have to make myself. It's like I have to keep it in mind. Oh, I must let them. Ha I can't interrupt. You know, I have to. I have to keep that in my head all the time. And sometimes I forget because I have attention deficit disorder. But nobody ever noticed that. It was always like, "You interrupted me again." How can you keep doing this? You must not, you're just a careless person. You must not care about me at all. And just the, the endless verbal abuse that you can observe. I mean, maybe abuse is a strong word. The shaming, the scolding that you get from someone if it's just an ongoing pattern that I basically sort of turn into sort of an emotional mess. I never had the idea once in my mind that it wasn't my choice. I was just the stupid one, you know. In my senior year of high school, I pretty much went into the blackest, darkest depression of, like, you can imagine, to the point where it wasn't even... It was more like acting out really weird, doing crazy things that were in a, you know that were probably not the best for me and I didn't care you know it's like not like I was laying in bed unable to get out of bed more like I was going out and getting involved with people I shouldn't have been in with people didn't talk about depression it wasn't a thing i mean my parents are british they don't talk about feelings that would be considered like you know like what are you talking about we don't talk about such things. That's very inappropriate. And that whole stiff upper lip thing is just sort of shorthand, but it, it's true. Being raised with people who don't talk about why they do anything or if they, oh, I made a mistake. I should have done this. Never once have my parents ever said anything like, oh, I wish we'd done this, you know, or I don't know what we're going to do. You didn't get to hear or learn about their, like, soul-searching that they must have done to make that decision. If you grow up like that, you don't have language to discuss things because you've never heard anyone talk about it, except maybe watching TV shows or something. My parents wanted me to go to college, so I'm like, okay, I'll go to college, I'll go to art school. So I went, I went to art school for a year. In 1986 or something like that, I ended up dropping out and I got into another relationship with someone. And uh, that one lasted eight years. And I'm going to say that his first name began with M. He was very much into back to the land kind of hippie thing. He actually was a Vietnam vet. He was very depressed and really d disliked people, and we ended up kind of living way out in the country alone. Say you're, what, 20, 
one or 20 years old and you get into a relationship with someone who's 15, 16 years older than you. But if you're born in the 60s and raised in the 70s, it's all like, oh, it's all, it's, there's no structure. There's no authority saying, well, that's a bad idea. It's like, no, there's no authorities anymore. There's Reagan. Nancy Reagan is your supposed authority. And since they had ignored the AIDS crisis for six years, hadn't spoken the word, all of it was crumbling into a mess of hypocrisy all around you. And so you were like, well, all the rules are out the window. It wasn't bad. It just didn't have any goal. It was just kind of like, we weren't going to get married. We weren't going to have kids. He didn't like people. It wasn't like he was taking advantage of me, but it was kind of like, it just it just wasn't going anywhere. It was just kind of like, it wasn't health, healthy in a way. So it th- came to a point where I met somebody else and moved out and he was telling me I'm going to kill myself and all of it's over and I'm going to die and like literally within two months he had her girlfriend and it was fine. The person I got into a relationship after him, I got married to him. We lived together for 20 years. We have two kids and um, I'm going to say his name begins with A. He is a very brilliant and intelligent, wonderfully smart talented human being with amazing skills. He's a software engineer and he's super bright. He has goals in life. He has like a a career trajectory. He's got things he wants to do, you know? That's what I was looking for is somebody who wants to do something, not just sit alone at home and hate people. He's my age, so it was a better fit. But at the same time, that same shit was happening with uh, me interrupting. He has a very odd way of talking and that he'll be talking and then there'll be a pause as he thinks of what he wants to say next. And that gives me a huge, big old gaping window for me to slide what I want to say right down his throat. It can be incredibly irritating, but his style and my style just never meshed. 20 years Living with someone and not having your conversational style mesh. The rejection sensitivity got way worse in that relationship to the point where I was just like dissociating for like the last five years of our marriage. I just thought about something else. I mean, I read books and just went off into fantasy land and didn't deal with it. And I had two kids to watch and take care of. Basically, I ended up not really having a marriage anymore. I was just living there. I was kind of like a roommate. The unpaid housekeeper and um, nurse and chauffeur and, and chef. But at the same time, I'm like self-harming and like tearing skin. It was bad. It was like I was really losing it. It was just too much being dissociated like that for so long that I, I basically didn't have sex. I didn't think about sex for like 10 years. I didn't look at anyone. I didn't flirt with anyone. I didn't imagine anyone. I never cheated in my relationship, not once, until the very end. We were just friends and we were just playing around with it. And I took pictures of him. Like, I think I took a picture of him. Like, I don't even know why. Just because I thought, oh, why not? I'll take a picture. It got put in my Google account. 
it didn't occur to me that photos went into your Google account. I've never, I never even looked in there. He saw it, and he saw it with his stepmom sitting next to him. I guess he brought up the Google account in front of her, his stepmom, and there was that picture. Yeah, I was just like, this was just a weird thing I did, and I'm, it's kind of over now. I'm not really doing it anymore. And that ended our relationship. He's like, well, you, you know, I guess you're, you know, we're getting a divorce and was just like livid at me. And that was a huge disruption in my life. After I left him, I actually had started a sort of online, like long distance relationship with someone. He just really made, you know, he just was on texting with me all day, in all day, all night. We were just talking, talking, talking. It's just amazing. It's like he's just really cool and super nice to me and like concerned about what I'm doing. And it's really, I really fall in love with him. And I'm going to say his name starts with B. At this time in my life, I'm realizing that I am, that I'm kinky. I don't know if that sound makes it sound kind of, isn't that cute? But it's not. It's more like a deep thing. It's like, it's like I had a desire to be playing around with power relationships of submissive and dominant, um, those kinds of things. It turns out that the, the whole sub-dom thing is that the sub is running the show. People think that the dom is in charge, but it is totally not true. The sub is in charge because the dom is saying, oh, does this feel okay? Is this all right? Is this, is this, uh, is this rope around your wrist too tight? Is it hurting you? Is it okay? Is it, you know, it's all asking questions like, are you all right throughout the whole thing? And do you like it or you do, don't like it? And I'm like, it doesn't seem like it matters whether I like it or not. I thought this was supposed to be about what you wanted. I was talking to someone who became a, who was a friend of mine at the time, and he's like, you know what, what that sounds like is it sounds more like a master-slave relationship to me than, a, than where, you know, in a master-slave relationship, it's, it's more about the slave does what the master wants, and the slave doesn't have a say. You, you just say yes, sir, or yes, ma'am, or whatever, you know, in your role. Um, and it tends, master-slave type relationship, it tends to be more of an ongoing thing, whereas a dominant submissive thing might be just for an hour. In that community, that's called a scene. So you might set up a scene where you go over to someone's house for an hour or something, and you play the role of dom or sub. And then when it's over... It's like, oh, how, you know, how did it go for you? You had a little, like, a debrief at the end. Whereas master-slave relationship, it's all the time. You know, you might have rules about how you behave at all times. And that's truly what I wanted at the time because that was, like, the thing that gave me the rush that I can't even explain it. It is very deep thing. It felt like the right thing. It was, like, it was amazing. And so this person, for some reason, we were chatting about something on texting back and forth. 
And I say something like, yeah, I would really like to be this role. And I think I said something like the old-fashioned housewife where, you know, the man was in control. And our conversation ended up being about that and, like, and how he also wanted that. That's kind of how our relationship went from there was like, okay, then um, if that's the case, then I need you. If you're going to be in a relationship with me, he said, I'm going to tell you something really terrible. I have these people who are blackmailing me for money because I got into a into this rental agreement with someone in New York. He gave a long um, description about it was so complicated and it had a lot of details uh, about the different people who were involved. This money that he had to pay them or else they were going to take away his license to his bar or something like that. And I said, oh, okay, so how much is it? And he's like, oh, I need like $9,000 or something like that. Would you help me out? And there was part of me that was like, uh, I don't think, this doesn't seem right. I don't really want to do this. He basically said that if I didn't do this, that it would kind of end our relationship because that's what he needed and... You know, I either believed in him or I didn't believe in him, and that was the time to choose. We did this for like a year. I was sending him money and usually in like $5,000 increments in like FedEx envelopes and stuff. He was living in Florida at the time. Uh, he had a very complex story about what he was doing there. And like, he actually, the one, the one thing that really legitimized him in, in my mind was the fact that he was working for a company that was like a national company that was a merchant account company. And I'm not going to give names, but, um, basically I was able to log into his account and it was a real account. This isn't bogus. He actually had a lot of customers and a lot of, uh, of accounts in there hundreds and was making money. I figured, well, that legitimizes him as a businessman, right? Then the next thing he was telling me about was that he has a sister and, um, and that he was helping her out. He was living with her because she had been in an abusive relationship and she had a child through the abusive relationship and the child was, was in the ICU in the hospital in Florida because it was prematurely born born at like 24 weeks or something like that. It was very close to non-viability. This l little baby, um, they were basically living at the hospital at the uh, Ronald McDonald house. And she was taking care of the baby, breastfeeding and doing the whole thing, just like, like pretty hardcore, like really difficult circumstances. And she was pulling through and really helping this baby out. And so that kind of gave me a sense of like, wow, these people are really honorable people, right? It turns out his mom lives in the area and it was still a master-slave relationship with me. He's like, you're not allowed to talk to my mom. You can't speak to her about anything. I need to, you know, she'll freak out. She's not really part of my life. And, um, and so I have to be very careful about how I approach her. Turns out she's coming over for Christmas. He takes me down to the garage and says, I have something really important to tell you, and I have to tell you now. I haven't, I have, I've been embarrassed to tell you. She's not my sister, she's my wife, and that's my kid. 
it upset me a lot and I was freaking out. And, um, but he's like, you know, talking me through it and like, I'm really sorry I didn't tell you. My mom is coming over and I knew I had to tell you this. He literally waited until like an hour before she got there to tell me this. She comes over and he kind of like re, he reconnects with her. And she ends up buying them so many Christmas presents for this kid and the, and the wife and, like, a lot of stuff. He's also asking me for money this entire time. I, I'm running out of money. I've used up all my money. I ended up cashing in my IRA and giving it to him and, like, oh, I need more money. I need more money. I'm already committed from all the other previous times I've given him money. So you're kind of habituated to it at this point. They're living in my house. I'm the slave. I do what I'm told. So I do it. It's another $5,000 or something like that. It was like, I don't think that he really wanted me sexually. I think it was just, um, I think he kissed, we kissed like twice, but it was more like a peck on the lips kind of thing in the entire time that I knew him. He really isn't there for me. He's there for my money. Finally, I run out of money. He's like, well, if you want me to stay here, if you want me to be in a relationship, you're going to need to do these things for me. Otherwise, I'm going to have to leave. And at that point, I was so hooked on the relationship that I, that, that just made me crumble. I just couldn't take it. The idea that he was going to leave was just horrible. I couldn't, I couldn't imagine. It was like, oh, it, was just, it would just destroy me. So I'm like, okay, I'll do anything to keep you here. He started targeting my parents for money and, like, figuring out ways to scam them out of money having to do with, like, you know, the IRS is coming after me for all this money and I have no money to pay for it because I'm sick and hurt his back and all these things. So he, he manages to get my parents to give him $10,000 for to pay the taxes, quote unquote. And that required me to make fake documents to show that he owed the IRS. I'm colluding with him completely in producing these documents, I'm like editing them on my computer and making them look like an IRS document to the T. I'm like, I'm doing a great job on this. Like, I'm fantastic at forging these documents. And I feel terrible about it. And I'm not, I, it's not something I ever want to do. I'm, I'm not, even talking about this is hard for me. So, um, like really hard. My parents believed in him because they thought I had vouched for him and I was faking the documents and making all this stuff come. And I, I think he ended up taking a lot of money from them and I don't want to go into great detail, but it was a lot of money, um, like a lot of money. At some point during that period of time, he starts doing crack. I didn't know that he was doing crack. I had no idea. I don't know. I didn't know what crack really looked like or, or how you smoked it or, or, or what the pipes looked like. It was just like, oh, don't come in the garage. Okay, I won't go in the garage. I'm a good slave, right? So finally, I'm like, I kind of pluck up courage and I go and look in the garage because I'm like, what is going on? So I went and look in the garage and there's all these little glass things. 
weird little glass things that smell bad. And I'm like, is smoking pot down here? They look like little glass pot pipes, but there's multiples of them and there's little baggies everywhere. And I'm like, this is weird. I sneak back to my room and I'm like, I look that up. I'm like, glass pipes that have like a little rose in them. I'm like, what is this thing? Turns out that he's having like his drug dealer coming over to our house, like on a regular basis. B is dressing up in a suit when he comes over, like putting on a dress shirt and suit and acting like a like a businessman, like just coming home from a busy day at the, you know, making money or whatever. But I'm not allowed to go downstairs. I'm not allowed to talk to him. I need to stay in my room. He's changed his whole tune. He's no longer love bombing me and treating me nice. He's just like, I don't want to talk to you. You're not allowed to ask me any questions about anything. And if you do, I will leave. So he's doing crack in the basement and living in my car in the driveway. We have no money, even though my parents are pouring money through this. I mean, 10,000 bucks at a time. But we don't have money to pay our power bill. We don't have money to pay for car insurance. We don't have money for, you know, we're living on food stamps. At that point, I I was, my whole mentality changed. I was like, this is fucked up. I, I don't know why it took me so long. I'm like, I finally approach the wife and I say, what is going on here? You can't, you know what are you doing? Like, how is this working out? You you can't keep doing this. Right around Valentine's Day, like February 12th or 13th, he is, comes to me and he says something like, I've got to leave. I got to leave right now. Um, I just, I have to go immediately. This drug dealer wants to kill me and all this stuff. Literally, he's rushing around packing a bag, like a duffel bag. And he's, running out the door and gets into my car that I bought with a lot of money and a huge debt that I took on for this car. And he drives off and moves into the wife's mom's house in New York. He's like, I'm coming back in a month. I'm just going to be gone for a while and then I'll be back. Within three days, I'm, it's almost like I wake up. The part of me that's been asleep this whole time wakes up. And I look around and I go, oh my God. You know, there's no water, there's no power, there's no internet, I can't use my phone. The gas has been turned off. It's cold. And I'm like, what have I done? I'm living in this house, a really nice house with no money. Scam my parents out of so much money that it's, shocking and I actually have to call them and I have to go over to their house and explain what happened I leave out the whole master-slave thing because they would never understand that but I basically tell them the whole story that I am the one who did all these things to them personally I'm the one who created all the fake documents and went and convinced them conning them, lying to them, making up all these stories. And they had to go through them with me one by one. Really? You did this? It was ours. I felt so horrible about it. I was just crying for like hours. 
to have to come through and own up to them, I was like, my only hope was hopefully they would understand. And if not, then at least they would know the truth. I would be in jail and, and they would ha- my kids would have to go live with their dad. And they were absolutely livid, furious at me. And they, I thought they were going to prosecute me for fraud. I, I really, I could have ended up in federal prison. And they, it's crazy, but they somehow managed to, to find a way to forgive me. And, um, and I, I literally don't think about this that much because it, it's really hard. But they did manage to do that. And um, I knew where he was staying at the time because the only place they could have gone was her mother's house. And I happened to have the address because he was expecting me to send money to him. So I had the address, called the car company that had the loan, and I told him what happened. And I said, this is where the car is. Go and repossess it now. I don't have any money to pay for it. My only hope is that you repossess it and you can take whatever you get for the car off my total. Like a week later, I got a call from B saying, these people came and they made me give them the keys. And I was like, yeah. How could you do that to me? That's my only vehicle. I don't have any other place to go. You know, I the mother in law doesn't like me I have to stay in the car and I'm like well that's too bad I'm finding piles and piles of receipts from the casino up in Washington dozens and dozens and dozens of these little receipt things that get printed out from like their um, video poker machines I'm pretty sure that the money that my parents got scammed out of was smoked in crack and also dumped into video poker machines week after week, month after month, like in the tens of thousands of dollars, just thrown away at this Alani place. If he had saved the money that he they gave him, he could have gone to Mexico and had a pretty good life, you know? He threw it all away on garbage, piles of baseball cards, video poker and crack he didn't keep any of that money he threw all of his all the money that he got away he could have made it he could have built a business he could have done all kinds of things with that money but he smoked it up in crack and gave it to the to the casino which means that he's not really very smart and i basically kind of have to live the rest of my life trying not to get mad at myself My ultimate conclusion that I've come to after doing research online in this kind of situation, that those people are either narcissistic personality disorder, the person who doesn't see other people as people, they see them as like, like furniture to make them look good, or he's a psychopath, and that a psychopath is um, different from a sociopath. A sociopath does bad things, but they kind of feel bad about it. They sort of feel guilt and they, it bothers them and worries them that they've hurt somebody or whatever. Psychopaths don't feel feelings. They don't understand feelings of people. They don't understand that they've made a person feel bad because they don't know what feeling bad means. 
he doesn't really see them as people. He sees them as pawns. And I was taken hook, line, and sinker, and so was my parents, and so was his wife. In a lot of ways, this guy has one skill. He can trick women into doing shit for him. And men, too. He's very good at conning people and making them believe stories. You don't get to take a class in high school on how to deal with psychopaths. Nobody talks about this stuff. I had to learn it the hard way. If you are in a, in a relationship where someone is love bombing you, someone has things about their story that just don't add up, you know, for some reason all their girlfriends hate them, they're all, all the girlfriends he's ever had are psychos, that they're disowned from their family and they don't have any friends, that's a sign of really, really big red flag. It doesn't have anything to do with how smart you are or how incredibly good at understanding people you are. You can still get taken by people like this, even if you are genius smart. You have to educate yourself to know the signs. They make you feel like you're the crazy one, that there's something wrong with you, that they haven't done anything wrong. It's, it's you're overreacting. He sent me an email saying that he was going to kill me and my, my kids for what I had done to him. I'm going to kill you when you least expect it, when you're, not, when you're not expecting it. It might be a year from now, it might be five years from now, but I'm going to come and get you, and you won't know it. You won't know it. I then had to contact the police. I got a restraining order against him for two years. I now own a handgun. <laughs> I keep my doors locked. I keep my address private. I mean, I know that the guy is a lazy asshole and he probably won't do anything, but I'm not going to be the one who goes, oh, shoot, I wish I'd done, you know, I wish I'd done something to protect myself because here he is killing me. When someone makes a credible threat, you have to start looking at your life differently and you have to start thinking differently. That was three years ago, but I'm still looking over my shoulder and, you know, guarding my personal privacy as closely as I can.